Welcome to the Teaching Behavior Together podcast, where I provide you with actionable steps for making your classroom management plan effective by incorporating behavioral and social-emotional learning activities into your daily teaching. Hi, I'm Maria, and I have 10 years experience in the field of behavior analysis. In each episode, I will be providing you with effective and evidence-based strategies you can use to create a classroom environment you want to go to each morning. No longer will you be driving home in tears over the overwhelming feeling of trying to manage student behaviors. So sit back, listen up, and start seeing success. and welcome to this episode of the Teaching Behavior Together podcast. Today we're going to be talking with Caitlin from Beltran Behavior Basics all about behavior change and how behavior change takes time. Now you've probably heard that behavior change takes time, but when you're the one implementing a behavior plan and you're the one waiting out that behavior change, it can be really challenging. So she gives us some amazing strategies that she uses to help wait out that behavior change and also some strategies she uses so that she can determine if it's time to change up the intervention or change something about the intervention protocol so that we can see that behavior change over time. So let's just get right into it. All right, everyone, I am here with Caitlin, and she's going to introduce herself really quickly. She is a BCBA working in schools, and we have a really fun episode for you today. Hi, I'm Caitlin Beltran. I'm a board-certified behavior analyst. Um, Currently, I got my start as a special education teacher, actually, in a private school for students with autism. Currently, I am the school-based behaviorist for a K-8 district, and I also teach part-time at Rutgers University in the Graduate School of Education. Awesome. So today we're going to talk about behavior change and how it takes time and some different strategies that we have for teachers in in terms of waiting things out or knowing when to change intervention strategies so that we maximize our students' success. So Caitlin, what are some strategies you have for identifying when we should wait things out a little bit longer? Sure. So I think this comes up a lot um, day to day with myself personally, because we all know that behavior change takes time and we'll kind of kick that phrase around like it's going to take time. It might get worse before it gets better. But the reality of living through that can be super, super challenging, um, especially when you're in the classroom and faced with behavior every single day. Um, I know when I was a teacher in my own classroom, it was obviously a lot harder to remember that every second to second than it is now in my more consultative role. Um, So one of the things that obviously I always recommend, and I'm sure all behaviors do, is to collect data on the problem behavior because data can really show us um, on paper whether or not the behavior is changing and how much. And sometimes if you have really, really frequent or severe behavior, you know, living through it day to day, um, you might not notice that progress during the day. And I know the first time this really hit home with me was I was working with a student. His behavior was literally, he would just scream in your face and he would do this upwards of like 50 times a day. So, you know, getting screamed at once a day is a lot, (laughs) but getting screamed at over and over throughout the day is a lot of disruption, a lot of people looking at you, a lot of work not getting done. Um, And I remember vividly the first time the behaviorist came in to kind of review the data we had collected and I hadn't really been, you know, looking at it. I was just going about my day-to-day teaching and she was like, it's going well. You know, he used to scream maybe 80 times a day and now it's 60 times a day and now it's 40 times a day. And I had no idea, like you could have knocked me over with a feather, like if you had told me it had actually decreased that much, because again, hearing that scream every day. Um, was so disruptive, but the data actually like gave a sense of hope and kind of gave me that feeling like, oh, we are on the right track. 
So it kind of was like a motivation to keep going. So that's something that I always recommend. Um, I know some people do like a little mantra or I don't want to say like positive self-talk. I know that's not exactly behaviorist language, but um, when you're role-playing the behavior, not just role-playing the intervention, but role-playing, okay, when this gets bad and when the behavior does get worse before it gets better, because we often expect that, um, how, like have, have a plan and not just like a plan of safety, which you definitely should have, but have a plan of maybe like a quick second breather, um, tap in your co-teacher or assistant paraprofessional if you have one, um, and then have like an actual plan of, okay, where is the student going to go? If there's a safety concern, where can the other kids go? Is there someone I could call for help um, to come and take over while we kind of power through this behavior episode in the moment? I love that, uh, like a positive, just something you can say in your head while like the behavior is happening and rehearsing that because when we don't practice the skill ourselves, it's hard to do in the moment. And that's such a great strategy to kind of remind yourself that this behavior will pass and that we have a plan in place. And I, I think that helps too, is reminding yourself of the plan and making sure that you're well-versed in your plan because when a behavior happens and you don't have a plan, it's like that panic mode of like, what do I do? We're having that really detailed outline plan, know exactly what you're going to do when the behavior happens, helps give you confidence to continue carrying out that intervention, even though the behavior can be really challenging in that moment. Absolutely. And I think sometimes taking it all the way, role playing, you know, what's going to happen on a good day, a bad day, and like what's going to happen on the worst possible day. Like there's a fire drill, you have a supervisor observing your classroom, another child's acting up. Um, and literally, what would you do if that was your scenario, if your paraprofessional called out sick, if you didn't have coverage? Um, and like you said, thinking about every aspect of it, obviously, we can't plan for everything, but it does give you kind of that confidence boost. If you plan for so many scenarios, you start to feel like, okay, I can handle this if something else comes up. Um, and that idea of like a little mantra, I think is something I've been exploring and want to do more of in the future. Um, I don't think I really paid that enough attention prior, but I think just giving the caregiver or the teacher staff member um, that sense of confidence, like yes, you can do this and what are you going to say to yourself or how are you going to think this in your head? Um, it could be like that two second quick breather, like I got this, let's do it. Like, I planned for this, um, some kind of confidence boost. And I've been using that sometimes with my own son's tantrums and it gives me a little sense of relief sometimes. That's awesome. And you mentioned briefly that extinction burst period of like, we know that at times our behavior will get more challenging before it gets better. And that's what's called an extinction burst. And essentially it's a spike in behavior, right? So we see like an increase in the behavior that we're putting an intervention in place for. Do you have any strategy for just kind of waiting that period out? Because that can be a really difficult time where people are questioning, am I doing the right thing? Absolutely. So yeah, that extinction burst can be so tough. And I think just taking a step back sometimes and kind of role playing and discussing the reasons why it happens with the teacher or paraprofessional or caregiver can sometimes really help that person understand the importance of carrying through because it can often look like, oh, it's not working because not only is it not getting better, it's getting way worse. Um, but taking a step back and kind of walking through from the student perspective, you know, this whole intervention, the strategy, the behavior change that we're trying to accomplish is really our idea. And hopefully we've, you know, tried to involve the student and given him or her choice and asked him about it and told him about it. 
But we have to acknowledge that at the at the end of the day, it really was our idea and it was our initiating this change because the student has already found a behavior that's working for them. So if they want attention and they're being disruptive, they've got it. They don't really have the need always to change their behavior. You know, we try to add in those rewards and tickets and coupons and all those fun things that they can get as rewards for doing it our way. Um, but if we don't acknowledge that, like they've already found a, a foolproof way, like they have the on and off switch at their disposable, at their disposal, and oftentimes it's easier and better than the way that we're suggesting. You know, so if the student is like being disruptive in the middle of class and they're getting immediate attention, and we're trying to teach them to raise their hand, and their student, the teacher might call on them, you know, with their way they're getting attention every single time and right away. But with our way, they might have to wait. The teacher might not see them right away. Another student might be talking first. Um, so really like walking through that in terms of what we're doing and the psychology behind it with the teacher or caregiver, I find can really benefit because sometimes there's little tweaks we can make along the way that we can allow access to that reward quicker for the student um, than, than engaging in their problem behavior, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Thinking about it from the perspective of the student, how the behavior is working for the student, right? And helping us really analyze the environment to see like what ways can we make the new behavior that we're trying to teach the student more effective and efficient for them so that they're getting it quicker, faster, and you know, at a greater degree than they were previously, that reinforcer, so that they're more inclined to utilize the more appropriate method of gaining attention or escape or whatever the behavior might be. I think framing it in the way of what the child um, sees and, and the child's behavior is such a great way for us to understand the why behind it too and and put us put ourselves in their shoes because again that behavior was working and if we you know if a behavior that was working for us all of a sudden changed we probably have a difficult time with that as well and our students who don't have um, developed self-regulation skills and everything like that might have a harder time managing it than we do as adults and so that's such a great perspective for taking for taking the extinction burst and looking at the extinction burst. And um, one thing that I like to tell teachers is that this this extinction burst can teach us a lot about the data, right? And if we're taking data through the extinction burst and we're waiting it out, we can see different levels of the behavior that then we can plan for again in the future, right? And for future behaviors that we might be um, addressing with a student or with other students, it gives us, you know, practice with the intervention, if that makes sense. And I know that kind of sounds weird, like practice with the intervention, but it gives us an opportunity to really help our students maximize their success because we know the different levels of their behavior. And, and I don't know if I'm explaining that completely correctly, but I think the extinction burst can be a time where we're taking really really intensive data and we're looking at that data for patterns to see how can we best maximize our student success. A 100% I agree with everything you just said. Um, I can think you know of time specific examples in the past where we've tried interventions and we've gone through what we think is an extinction burst and it turns out you know it's just not an effective plan but at the end of the day, it brought us one step closer to the plan that did work for that child and that team because it taught us maybe what didn't work or what aspect of that plan didn't work. And like you mentioned, it kind of, we got to, we got a practice round out of it. So as much as that might be frustrating to hear, like we did all this work and it, it didn't work out the way we wanted, um, we are really one step closer. And if we don't look at it that way, I think we could it would be tempting to say, well, it just didn't work and I give up and this is never going to happen. And I'm never going to find the magic intervention that's going to work. 
But when we start to look at it through that lens, like there really is no failure, it's just data and it's good data. If we were taking reliable data, it's telling us something. It's telling us maybe that plan didn't work or one aspect of the plan didn't work. Um, but we can brainstorm together of now, you know, what might work next. And a lot of times I found it like somewhat of a bonding experience between staff because they've all taken the same data. They've all seen the same behavior episodes and trying those same interventions. Sometimes it happens without even my presence, like that staff classroom might come together and come back to me and say like, oh my gosh, we just realized when we took the data, it always happened before lunch and we were trying to give him a reward, but really he was hungry or something like that. That's just one example. Um, but when the team is working together consistently with the data, we see a lot of good things come out of it, regardless of whether or not we hit the nail on the head the first try. Just to um, go back to that point of like, you know, developing a new behavior or new habit, just not only putting ourselves in that student's shoes, but like really relating it to a time in our lives that we were trying to change a behavior. And I talk about this a lot. It's like one of the things I'm really passionate about is how hard it can be to change a behavior no matter whose behavior it is. So we can all think of examples, right? Like I've tried to maybe exercise more or save money or, you know, uh, eat healthier, any type of habit you've ever tried to change and how difficult it could be. Like if it were easy, everyone would do it all the time. Um, and that's with the behavior that we want to change and that we initiated that change and that we decided this wasn't working for ourselves. So kind of throwing in that added wrench of like, again, I'm trying to get the student involved and make them have choices and feel in control. But at the end of the day, I designed that intervention for that student. And it's not a behavior they want to change. So taking that step back and again, putting yourself in the student's perspective, but also kind of relating it to something in your life can give you like that patience to work through the extinction first or work through any of those unnecessary harmful side effects, I should say, or side effects we didn't want to see. Um, just remembering like that patients we had to have in our own life for something we wanted to change about ourselves. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and with our own habits that we're trying to change, like you said, saving money or um, exercising or eating healthier, whatever it might be, how long it takes us to notice a change in ourselves, right? So how long it takes to actually see like actual growth in the savings um deposits that you're depositing your savings account or whatever it might be or how long it takes to see the positive side effects of changing you know eating healthier or eating organic or whatever it might be if you know if you think it'll help you feel more awake or more have more energy or whatever it might be that takes a long time to see those changes and just relating that back to how long it can be how long it can take for behavior change to happen in our classrooms is such a great way to draw those parallels so that we have a more understanding perspective when we're in the classroom and we're trying to change behavior a long time yeah i was actually reading something the other day where i always kind of you know, I'm researching little things about habits and behavior change and as are we all, I'm sure. But um, that idea of like, it takes 21 days to form a new habit or it can take like up to 66 days to form a new habit. And I was reading something interesting where it said, you know, somewhere along the way that statistic got kind of skewed. Like the original fact was that it can take at least 21 or 22 days to even see progress with changing a new habit. Again, if it were easy, we would all be doing it. We would all be you know, walking around like these perfect little robots doing everything as we wanted to do. Um, and so giving like not only ourselves that grace, but our students that grace and reminding ourselves constantly that like this is a change that we're engineering. And it's going to take so much time. It's going to sound easier done than it is. We're all going to acknowledge that it's going to take time when we talk about it. But in real life, um, even just reconvening with the team like every day, every week, 
you know, did we see any change? No, that's okay. We're all here to remind ourselves that like it's only day one. It's only week one. It's only, you know, when we get into week two or three, maybe we are looking for a little bit of sign of progress or growth or something to be happening. Um, but just to all remind ourselves, because I'm the one that's passionate about behavior change taking time. And then there's certain times, there's certain behaviors you never know where you just lose that in the moment. And you, I need someone else to remind me like, okay, we just started this last week. We need to give it a little bit more time. Yeah, absolutely. And so there are definitely times when we're waiting out that behavior change, but what are some signs that you look for when we're trying, when we're looking at the data and we're saying, okay, it's been about two or three weeks, we're not seeing much, like what do you look for and what strategies do you have for teachers when we're in that situation where we want to change something up with intervention? Okay, so definitely, um, I think the data is going to show us in the first couple of weeks just what is happening. Like if there's absolutely no change at all, um, again, the, the data is going to tell us something regardless of what happened. So if there's not a change at all, even if there's no extinction burst, so if the behavior is just flat, sometimes that tells me, okay, the student's not really aware of what's going on. So if the student was aware of what's going on, maybe their behavior is going up because they're bad, there's changes in place and it's not how they usually, you know, how, how the pattern usually goes. But if nothing's happening at all, um, it could be a sign that maybe the student's just not even connecting the behavior to the consequences or rewards that we're trying to tie in or a behavior that the student's not as in control of as we thought. So that's one thing that I look for um, almost in every plan and every child that I work with because you know, triple checking, have we checked with parents to rule out something medical, or is this a sign that something medical is going on where the student is not, you know, the behavior, the trend line is just flat, there's no change either way. Um, if the behavior is going up right away, sometimes, unfortunately, this can be a positive sign. Um, so again, as much as it's frustrating in the moment, I can sometimes prep a team or a teacher to say, like, great job. I know this was like a really bad day, but it's actually looking good because the student is so angry that, you know, they're not getting the response they want. They're pushing back a little. And within a few days, we should start to see that come down. Of course, if it doesn't come down after that few days, again, it could be a sign something's not working. We may need to change either what the consequences that we're delivering or the reward for not having that behavior. Um, and then oftentimes, I would say every single time in some way or other, um, it comes down to, are we teaching the student what to do instead? So we can have a consequence or a reward or you know a certain pathway of what we're going to do for this behavior, but are we also teaching the student, you know, not just not to do that, but to do something else instead? So the example of like looking for attention and the students calling out, I can give them those check marks all the time for not calling out and me thinking that would be so great, they're gonna get their sticker or their lollipop for not calling out. But if they really want that attention, Am I tying that in somehow? Am I teaching them appropriate ways to get attention? Or if the work is too difficult and I'm trying to you know, provide rewards and consequences for that behaviors, all well and good. And sometimes that works on its own, but not often. But more importantly, am I teaching that student a way to get that break from demands? And sometimes for whatever reason, I think that's often myself included the part that falls to the wayside because we're so focused on the chart or the data or, you know, the good things they can get or the bad things that might happen for the behavior or not. Um, but really like we need to look at it as we're teaching the student a whole new skill and it needs to be treated like an academic skill, practice, practice, practice. It's going to take time. They might go from raising their hand once a day to, you know, the 20 time a day that we're looking for. Um, but it, it needs to be treated systematically and they need to have a way to respond to get them that function that they desire, whether it's the break or attention or, you know, a tangible item. 
Yeah, absolutely. Skill, like the skill portion of the behavior plan is one that I think often in falls to the wayside because when we're when we're in the midst of it when we're in the thick of it everyone wants to know what do i do when the behavior happens as opposed to like the behind the scenes work of how do i teach a new skill every single day and reinforce this skill so that the student has a new way of accessing whatever they were accessing or escaping to begin with and that can be like a whole mindset shift because that, that might not be the way that a lot of people in classrooms or teachers or paraprofessionals are used to managing behaviors or changing behaviors in their classroom is coming at it from a teaching perspective of teaching that alternative behavior and some of those antecedent strategies that we can put in place so that you know we're setting up the environment so that the student can be as successful as possible. And in teaching those skills, I think also a lot of times we think, well, they must know how to do this, you know, or they do it sometimes, like they raise their hand sometimes, but they call it so many other times, so they must know how to do it. And I think that what we have to reframe is, okay, so we know that they can do it, but can they do it in different situations? Can they do it when they're upset? Can they do it when they're really happy? Can they do it when this is like the best thing ever that they have to tell you right then and now? Um, so that they can do it in a variety of situations and that we really build that skill to fluency. And I think that's where we fall a little bit short sometimes is, well, I've seen him do it or I've seen the student do it, but can they do it to fluency so that they're doing it all the time? And is that other behavior not working for them anymore? So if shouting out is still working and it's easier, then I'm going to keep shouting out. If um, putting my head down and refusing to do my work is easier than asking for a break, then I'm going to keep doing that as opposed to appropriately asking for a break and taking that break. So I, I that's a, an excellent point to make sure that we're really focusing on the replacement scale when we are looking at data to determine, okay, is this do we need to change the plan or do we need to make sure that we're carrying out the plan with fidelity and teaching a replacement skill? You just brought up so many good things at once. And I started writing as you were talking because it was giving me so many thoughts. Um, but first, the way you brought up the question of what do I do when the behavior happens? And this is the question I get asked probably most often, in, you know, my whole day to day responsibilities as a behaviorist. And it's not a bad question. And we have to answer that question because you do need a plan for when the behavior occurs, but it's often just not the right question to ask. It's, it's just irrelevant almost because I always think like, well, if the behavior is happening, you can respond to it a number of different ways. You can respond to it in a way that makes the behavior get worse in the moment or gets better in the moment. But neither of those really is going to be the perfect long-term solution because I equate it to like, if I'm going into the supermarket with my son and he just starts tantruming in the cart or something, I know exactly how to stop it. I can give him my phone. I can give him a lollipop. I can you know, leave the store. But none of those things are really what I should be doing because that's not bringing me to my long-term goal of having him not have a need to cry out in the store. Um, so that's one thing. And, the, and it's always, it's a frustrating answer to hear because it's, you know, you do need to know what to do in the moment, but it also means it's not really what we should be focusing on. And that's exactly what you were alluding to, that mindset shift of, Yes, we should answer that question, but also more importantly, we should be talking so much about what to do before the behavior happens and kind of minimizing the need that the student even has to exhibit that behavior. So again, just like using the raising hand example instead of calling out. Once they call out, they've called out. Like the behavior happened. We can reinforce it. We can punish it. We can do a number of things. But have we given them attention prior so that they don't have to call out? Or have we taught them a way, as you said, to raise their hand so they don't feel the need to call out? Are we reinforcing that hand raising just as much, if not more, and better 
than them calling out? Are they getting the same levels of attention? There are definitely ta- there's definitely a time and a place to change an intervention plan, right? If we're looking at the data, if we know we're implementing it with fidelity, if we know we're teaching a skill and it's just like pretty stagnant or that rate of improvement is just not where we want to see it, then that's when we can add stuff to the intervention plan or take stuff out, whatever, you know, the team decides is most appropriate. And then knowing um, when to change based on no progress or maybe there's just very little progress. And sometimes you might have a student who's doing the desired behavior that you want to see, but they're not doing it all the time or enough that we might want. But to me, I think any any direction in the positive change is good. There may be things we can do to speed that up, um, especially if the student starts to display that positive skill. But if at all we're seeing the negative, you know, the problem behavior go down and the desired behavior go up, it's usually like a very, very good sign that we're onto something good. And again, that can be frustrating because maybe that progress isn't happening as quick as we'd like to. And I know you brought up the example. That's what I wanted to go back to of, well, I saw them do it. You know, like we taught them to raise their hand. I gave them the card, the visual cues on their desk, and they did it. And that was great. But then they called out 25 more times. So now, you know, I'm not sure what's going on. It's not working because I know they can do it, but they're not doing it. And I think you kind of highlighted this really important fact earlier, whereas like we know they can already do it. Like we know that physical behaviors in their repertoire. There's rarely that I'm working with a student who cannot physically lift his hand and you know have the capacity to, to wait. Um, but can they do it in all those different generalized situations? And are we practicing that enough? Like we're saying, raise your hand and you might get called on, but are we practicing that in a one-in-one situation? Are we role-playing with the student? Are we practicing and teaching him? You might have to wait up to one minute to be called on. Are we really practicing that skill? Again, just like we would an academic skill in all different contexts and generalization and and different settings so that um, we're really facilitating the growth of that skill. And so that hopefully between myself and the student and the teacher, we're coming to an agreement. Like we know they can do it. And that doesn't mean it's gonna happen overnight that all of a sudden they're doing the positive behavior much more. They still need time because they still need to practice in all those different situations and to see what's what it's going to get them, right? Like, is this going to get me anything? And the, you know, one thing that is I'm really passionate about is if they do that even once, if they don't do that behavior and do something else, a lot of times it's a student who's been so disruptive and so behavioral. There's like that temptation for the whole class and staff and everyone to be like, oh, they didn't just, they didn't misbehave. I'm going to move on with my day. But that is the most important time for everyone to stop what they're doing and really reward and reinforce. And, oh my God, you did it. Like you don't, you didn't have a tantrum. You stopped, you used a strategy, you took a deep breath. That's so important to highlight because if we don't capitalize on those teeny tiny successes, um, we might just never get further than that. Whereas if we do, we might shape that behavior into like they're using it more, using appropriate skills more and having that problem behavior less. Yeah, absolutely. And you brought up like a really great point is that when we're teaching a new skill, we know that we have to reinforce it at a very um, strong rate, right? Like a a fixed ratio one schedule when we first start seeing that behavior so that we know that then that later on we can fade that schedule of reinforcement. But to build a skill, there needs to be a high rate of reinforcement for that skill to maintain over time. And you also brought up a really great point about seeing the difference in the behavior change in our data of seeing that increase in the desired behavior and that subsequent decrease in the undesired behavior. And I think a lot of times we take data on just the behavior that we want to decrease and then we never really see that increase. So we have like kind of incomplete data where seeing a behavior decrease over time is definitely something that we want to see. 
but it could if we're not taking data on the alternative behavior that we're teaching the kid can just be engaging in a different behavior that's also undesired right like instead of shouting out they can be walking up to the front of the classroom and and just you know, saying whatever they need to say in front of the class as opposed to shouting out from their desk or, you know, whatever it might be, or instead of putting their head down um, to signify that they need a break as opposed to using a break card and, you know, just leaving the room. So we want to make sure that we're taking data on both so we can see that inverse relationship. And that can also be um, a clue into us of is this working or not? Yeah, so we don't, the last thing we want is for it to be like that game of whack-a-mole where you're like, okay, we got rid of the calling out, everything's perfect, but wait, we didn't take data on, you know, running to the front of the room, so now we're not seeing that full picture of, oh, they're just doing something else instead, which is a tricky thing to wrap your head around, but ultimately, if you realize, like, the, the reason why behind their engaging behavior is just so much more important than the actual behavior they're doing, so if we're not addressing the why, we're just not addressing that behavior at all. So if we're really addressing that why and teaching them a way to get attention, for example, then hopefully we're seeing that meaningful change and knowing yes. that uh, we're on the right path. These are so many great strategies. I'm hoping that teachers listening to this are getting some confidence in their intervention strategies and in really um, reflecting on the the behavior intervention process as a whole and just understanding that behavior change takes time and that as teachers are utilizing these strategies in their classroom to evaluate their intervention plans, they're able to utilize some of these ideas so that we either are tweaking the intervention or waiting it out till we see that progress um, in the behavior. Do you have any other strategies you want to share with us right now? Um, I think one of the things I always recommend is just getting another ear or another perspective, even if it's not my own. And I know, you know, a lot of us can relate to other behaviors being the one person in the district. It's hard to get to everyone at one time. Um, but just like walking something through with like a colleague or a trusted, you know, administrator, supervisor, anyone, and just being like, would you have done this the same way? Or I always try and tell people like, I'm available. Like, even if I don't see you in that building that day, shoot me an email and just be like, this is what happened. This is what I did. You know, I know I'm not scheduled to meet with you until next week, but would you do anything differently? And nine times out of 10, it's, I would have done everything the exact same, but it's sometimes either nice to hear that reassurance or just to get another take. Like, I think I did this right, but should I have done this? And, you know, sometimes I'm like, wow, I wouldn't have even thought of that. I think that's a great thing to try tomorrow or something else. So just like don't be afraid to reach out and ask questions and role play it with somebody um, sooner the better so that we can um, just make sure we're all on the same page going forward. Yes, absolutely. It can be so reassuring to like hear someone else validate the strategy ideas that you have or give you other ideas. And and I'm in a very similar situation where I'm not in the same building every day. So it can be challenging. So if you do have a behavior specialist in your district, um, you know, they're probably always open to getting your emails and bouncing ideas off of you. And they want to hear what's working in your classroom, what's feasible in your classroom, so they can recommend things to you that that will work for you because not every intervention is going to work for every teacher just based on the classroom makeup and help and support and, and students and all that stuff. So really letting them know what, what you can and can't do in your classroom, that feasibility piece of it is going to be key to behavior change as well. Oh, that's just such a great little add on to that. It's just like being honest from the start. Like if it's something as a teacher you're not comfortable with or you just don't see fitting into your day, I never, you know, that's a lot of legwork to change a behavior. So I never want to be giving someone a strategy that they just absolutely don't think can be practical. So just being honest and saying, you know, I just, I love my idea, but I don't think it's going to work. 
um, or something along those lines so we can come to an agreement on something that's really practical for you to do. Yeah, absolutely. And you are a behavior specialist in a district. And do you want to just talk, chat a little bit about that? Because I do get a lot of questions. There are a lot of teachers that listen to us that might be special ed teachers or just general ed teachers that are looking to either get their BCBA or become a behavior specialist. Maybe just talk a couple of minutes about, you know, what your experience has been with that. Sure. So, I mean, I definitely love my role as a district behaviorist. I know a lot of districts handle it different ways. I'm in a relatively small district, so there are only three buildings. Um, it, I mean, it seems like a lot for me day to day, but I know, you know, districts of various sizes may have one to two to five behaviorists at a time. So I'm the only one of me, which is probably the only thing that, um, not that I dislike, but sometimes it, it's, it would be nice, I feel like, to have a partner in crime or something to bounce ideas off of but I work mostly with the special education population in our district. So mostly the students that are classified and receiving special education, whether they have a behavior plan or if there's a problem behavior cropping up, the first thing I might do is um, a functional behavior assessment. So a lengthy report evaluation um, involving data collection. I observe the child, but I also sometimes am relying on teachers to take data and then I'm looking at and analyzing that data and then putting together some type of plan as we've been talking about this whole time. Sometimes that's a formal plan, like doing the FBA, putting a BIP in the IEP, so many initials, um, and going forward like that. And sometimes it's more of just like simple classroom strategies. Um, a lot of times I am, I don't know about a lot of times, some part of my job is working with the general education students as well. And our district uses the response to intervention model. So sometimes I'm called to meetings where you know, it's a team of teachers that are working with one student in particular who is not receiving special education, but we're trying to do some general classroom strategies or some simple ideas to kind of hopefully remediate what they need and fix the gap now before they might end up needing special education services. And that's more of like quick check-ins and teacher console and teacher training. Uh, one thing I will say is it's definitely a shift going from a classroom where you get to know your students every day really well and firsthand like see their triggers and their progress and their strengths and their weaknesses and feeling like you know them like the back of your hand to working in a district where you're bouncing back and forth and might not see the same child twice in one week, which is, you know, upsetting from that going from that one perspective to the other sometimes. But the flip side is getting to know more students, getting to know more teams and sometimes feeling like you're impacting change in that way. Um, so a lot of what I do is I definitely get to know the students as best I can, but a lot of times I'm that like person once removed where I'm doing a lot of training, a lot of whether it's professional development for like a global, you know, school or grade or team, or like working with one specific team and saying, okay, this is how we're going to change the behavior. This is how I think we should go about it. But I'm not the one actually seeing that student every day and administering the, the changes or the plan. Um, so that's something that's just definitely a shift and I think personal preference. I kind of, I've grown to really love it because no two days are alike. Like I might be in a middle school one day working with teachers and checking in with the student who's transitioned from class to class and the next day I might be in our autism slash ABA classroom where I'm working with like a self-contained classroom before paraprofessionals are in the room, um, a more intense behavioral needs and things like that. That's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. And if you're thinking about becoming a BCBA or behavior specialist, definitely reach out because we can answer any questions that you might have and are happy to talk about our jobs because I think we both really like our jobs and, yeah. um, and enjoy being I, behavior specialists I, in our district. 
Yeah, I think um, a lot of times I notice if people are even remotely thinking about it, they're like, I might want to do what you do, you know, do you have any, and I'm like, you definitely should do this. Because if you're even thinking about it and you think that what I do is like remotely fun or challenging and rewarding, you can tell that person has that passion in them to work with, you know, these types of scenarios and challenges and, and all different kinds of things that I think not everyone really wants to do. Um, and some people think that um, maybe going from the classroom to out of the classroom is easier or harder. And I don't think it's really either, it's just different. So like kind of thinking about all those things going into it as well. But I would love to chat with anyone even remotely thinking about it because I think it's such a cool field. And I wanted to mention too that I feel like when I first started, it was much less kind of known and accepted. And now it's been kind of nice because over the past few years, even I feel like there's more recognition of even just what we do, not not necessarily whether the people like it or not. Um, but when I first started and saying, oh, you're you're a what like a behavior what and versus now people are like, oh, yeah, I, our school has one of those or I my friends going to school for that or something. So I think that's awesome because the more people we have who are understanding this perspective and working together with other people, um, the more ch positive changes that we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. I always say that when I was in undergrad, so like over 10 years ago, I wanted, I knew I wanted to be a behavior specialist in a district. I fell in love with ABA, but I knew like in home or, or clinic based services just wasn't my path. And, but back then, like there were no BCBAs in schools and that it, like the job didn't exist. I wanted a job that didn't exist. Yeah. And so I stayed in school for 10 years until the job I wanted existed. And I was like, <laughs> all right, here we go. <laughs> Um, absolutely there's it, definitely way more now than there used to be and i hope that trend continues absolutely i think it's so needed everyone that i talk to is like oh we need more behavior specialists in schools and i you mm -hmm. know 100 agree but i'm biased towards that um, yeah. anyway but you mentioned that um anyone can reach out to you if they have any questions about your job or what it looks like day to day so why don't you go ahead and share what you, uh, where people can find you Sure. So on Instagram, um, my account is Beltrans Behavior Basics. My last name, Beltrans Behavior Basics, um, all one word. And then I also have a Teachers Pay Teachers under the same account. Um, and I put my email, I try to put my email in like every product I create, whether it's like a data sheet or a training or anything. And so that you can feel free to contact me if you go that route or on Instagram, like I get a lot of private messages sometimes about things. And I absolutely love that. I love that so much, like connecting with different people in the field. And it always kind of hopefully helps the other person and also gives me new ideas to think about or create products or try and make things that could help people in the field. So those are two really easy places that you could get a hold of me if anyone wants to. Yes, absolutely. So definitely reach out, go follow her over on Instagram and see all of her posts. She posts a lot about data collection and, and different Excel tricks. Too much. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're looking to organize your data, definitely check her page out. And um, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed talking to you and hopefully teachers are taking a lot of strategies away from this. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun to do. All right, everyone. That's all we have for you tonight. Thank you so much for listening. I'm hoping that you're taking so many amazing strategies away from this episode into your classrooms and really waiting out that behavior change so we can really maximize our student success and knowing when it's time to change up the intervention so we also maximize our student success. If you want to continue this conversation, feel free to follow me over on Instagram at teaching behavior together and follow Caitlin over on Instagram at Beltran Behavior Basics. 
Also, if you're looking for more strategies for classroom-based behavioral interventions, I have a free resource guide for you in the description of this podcast. So go down to the description, click on the free resource guide, and you will get it in your email very, very shortly so that you can start implementing different interventions in your classroom to really maximize student success. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of the day.